0: I was thinking this morning about a trip 19 years ago to Cairo that our family took and we brought a group of students and we lived in a garbage collectors community. Uh, Betsy and Christian have been in that community. It's a fairly intense place. And for the last couple weeks of the trip, I didn't sleep. I mean, the heat was just so bad as it felt like the mattress stored up heat in order to expel it at night onto your back and like, I had stopped sleeping like it it was a, I was a little scary cuz like I was kind of delirious after a couple of weeks of very very little sleep and uh, this was around the time we we're going to debrief the students and I was going to call them to consider relocating to places like this just as agents of change just as a way to express worship is being in these locations and and trusting God to bring about goodness and shalom through your being there. And I was really having trouble um, considering making that challenge, because in this community, people were quite content. <clears throat> and it was, it was a fairly intense place to be, and people were like, okay, there. There's a kind of equanimity, a kind of peacefulness that often occurs in desperate situations, Part of it may be coping, part of it may be grace, but was I really in a place of wanting to call people to come and be agents of change in this place when there's contentment here? So in my delirium, I'm laying down, middle of the day, uh, before going to debriefing to kind of make this call to these students. And I'm fading in and out of consciousness, kind of. (laughs) And in my state of in-betweenness, I see the dung truck. Now, you could smell the dung truck before you saw the dung truck in the heat of Cairo. This was a truck that came to people's homes. just brick structures, basic b- brick structures. People raised animals in their home. And so the dung truck came, and these guys would have these wicker baskets. And they would scoop up the dung inside the living quarters where people were and take it and dump it on the dung truck. It's a pretty. Uh, awful job to have, but the, the community actually collected the garbage of Cairo. So the dung truck guys were, uh, had an even more difficult job than those who lived in the garbage collector's community. And in my delirium, I saw the dung truck, and I saw my three kids, Hannah, Philip, and Laura, and kind of around Finn and Jane's age, and they were sitting on top of the pile of dung in the dung truck. It was a really disturbing image in, in my in-between state. And they look so peaceful and so content. And I heard God's voice. Are you content as their dad? Are you okay with this? And it gave me this perspective that I needed, um, that people, even myself, can get content with dung like can just become okay with that when the heart of God is to see something more. And so that was this experience that was just profound that I found in my experience, um, as you're out of your comfort zone, there is a way in which you dial into the frequency of the spirit that I don't always get when I'm in the routine of the day. Something about being displaced, about being on the road gives us a frequency that allows us to dial into God. So the idea of being out of your comfort zone is this place for meeting with God shows up in scripture. I mean, the Exodus, that's where the, the law is solidified during this place of intense displacement. They're in the desert, they're wandering. And then of course, exile, super displaced in the land of their conquerors. That's where the the collection of scriptures come together and the, the prophets. So Jesus teaching on the road, constantly on the move, and you find these powerful moments for the disciples and for Jesus to do this teaching in this state of on the move and being displaced. Well, we're starting a series where we're looking at two chapters of one of the Gospels, Luke. The chapters are 9 and 10. If you've got your Bibles, you can kind of look at those couple of chapters. It's a pretty interesting um, pair of chapters. So they're, they're kind of moving from this place where Capernaum is the home base, and they're going out in Galilee and hanging out in those spaces, to this itinerant thing. They're, they're going to Jerusalem. In this, And so there's lots and lots of stuff happening in these um, couple of chapters. So just as an overview, um, I've paired some of these. I'm looking at the sending of the 12 in Luke 9, and the sending of the 70 or the 72, depending on your translation, in uh, 10. And next week, uh, Mark Gentry is going to teach on Peter's Confession... And Herod's perplexity. So you, you see these sort of pairs. Who is Jesus? Well, Peter's got his confession, and Herod's got his questions. There's the feeding of the 5,000, July 25th. Cost of discipleship is in here, August 8th. Healing of a boy, and who will be the greatest? You know, these kids come up as these pairs of like, oh, here's this interesting perspective on children and their relationship with the with the kingdom of God, the bad so-called Samaritans, chapter 9 at the end, the good Samaritans, end of chapter 10, you know, Martha and Mary, Um, so these are going to be an interesting set of teachings that I feel like move us from this place of being students to being sent ones, we notice this movement from disciple to apostle. Those are the two meanings of those words, from student to sent ones. I think you probably need to be both. But this pair of chapters captures some of that transition as they've been studying under Jesus, and now they're moving out as sent ones to be part of this expanding kingdom. Um, So Luke is a great author to be studying under. Uh, the, the book of Luke is really about this journey from Capernaum to Jerusalem. And the book of Acts, his uh, you know sequel, is from Jerusalem to Rome. So Luke is like in this pair of books going from Galilee to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Rome, and you're seeing this expansion of the kingdom of God, the nation of God, throughout Luke's travel log. It would make sense, I suppose. Paul picks Luke up on his second missionary journey, and we know this because uh, as Paul can't get into Bithynia or Asia, you know, he's having the spirit of Jesus, and the spirit's not letting him go. He, he turns around, and just before going to Philippi, the uh, the pronoun switches to we, and so we know that the author is now traveling with Paul and these two must have developed quite a bond because near the end of his life, Paul is writing to the Colossians. He's like, everybody's abandoned me except for Luke. Luke is stuck with me. So you get this guy, this Gentile um, doctor. That, uh, Paul refers to him as the good doctor, the beloved doctor. So he's a doctor. He's a Gentile. He's traveling with Paul. And, and when Luke does his investigation about Jesus... He interviews folk, but he sees these stories and writes down these stories from his Gentile perspective. So we get this kind of interesting window on the life of Jesus um, through this Gentile doctor. It, we kind of see some doctory stuff, notices Peter's mother-in-law healing, like she had a high fever. He, he qualifies, like he doesn't give us a temperature, but like he knows, and he's he, describes a healing a man with dropsy like he gives his condition so luke notices some of these details as he's uh, listening to these eyewitness accounts and writing down this story about jesus uh interestingly enough you know the woman who had the issue of blood one of the other gospel writers says she went to all these doctors and they only made it worse he leaves that part out so you know (laughs) we know he's probably looking from his own perspective. I don't know that it was the doctors who made this worse. Let's not stretch things too much here. Um, and, you know, he's, he's seeing the story of Jesus from a Gentile perspective. So Matthew, who's very much uh, located in the Jewish tradition, he traces Jesus's genealogy from Abraham, not Luke. Let's go back to Adam. Like this is about before Abraham. Like, this is about the the people on planet Earth, and we're going to trace his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Um, and, you know, he notices the light to the Gentiles kinds of things in his telling of Jesus' story, because he's probably writing, uh, he's traveled with Paul to all these places, he's probably thinking the... Jailer, that guy that we went to his house and you know his his whole family got baptized, like that's who I'm writing to. And and that guy's gonna want to know about Jesus' being the light to the Gentiles. And so likely Luke is thinking about the Gentile places that he traveled with Paul as he writes. And some think he was a slave. Isn't that interesting? The the position of physician <coughs> wasn't an esteemed one then and often physicians were kind of owned and we see in Luke this particular attention to the marginalized he mentions the shepherds uh you know Luke is the one who records oh Jesus said blessed are the poor uh in this sermon not blessed are the poor in spirit <coughs> which he probably said and often I find that those who are materially poor are also poor in spirit but but Luke you know talks about the He's the only one who, who, who uh, records Jesus' story about the rich man and Lazarus. So he's got this perspective about the marginalized that comes out in Luke's writing, perhaps because he knows something about marginalization as physicians were um, in perhaps the marginalized community that some believe. So I'd love us as a congregation to try to adopt this Mindset of being displaced or this willingness to be displaced. I mean, we sang it, right? I want the spirit to take me where my trust has no borders. Uh, do we really want to do that? Because, like, those are the places you may end up in a garbage collector's community and feeling like I am way out of my comfort zone here. That's the place where we see real acceleration of growth when we are displaced that's the mindset i feel like we need to take on as we're thinking about our movement into um, these neighborhoods not as people who have control not as people who kind of own the neighborhood but as guests who are dependent part of the reason i have stuck it out in my job or become profoundly stuck in my career for 35 years, is this idea of taking people out of their comfort zone in order for spiritual formation to happen. So I like to say that sending people on mission, so looking at the sending of the 12 and the sending of the 70, like those are where I live. That's, you know, I have students study those passages because that's what we're doing here. And what I found is that when you do that, when you set out on journey, when you are displaced, three things happen. You learn to hear well, you learn to love well, you learn to die well. There, there are ways in which you hear God's voice. As I mentioned in that opening story, like I just was able to encounter God differently in a way that the Spirit spoke pretty seriously, pretty profoundly, that I doubt if I'd stayed home uh, I would have heard the same kind of thing. There's an openness to that. There's loving. You, you Your love is tested when you're placed I- amongst people that you didn't necessarily choose. I know that's true in a family, but when you're sent out together or even in a body like this, if we had to live together 24-7, our love would be stretched. And if we lived in the campus or... In Triangle, you know, there are ways in which our love gets stretched, and I've seen that happen with students. Like, they are called to love people that they didn't know that they could love. I could tell stories about students finding something in them that allowed them to love when they really were, uh, they really hated the people that they were with. And you don't often have choices. And then you learn to die to yourself my old boss's wife, when the wall was coming down in Russia, in the, in the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, remember that place? When that thing came down and we were sending people out, my boss and his wife were there, and she got deathly ill in the Ukraine and um, had to go to the hospital. And no one spoke English. And, you know, the doctors were performing these, it it seemed like, to her perspective, very non-Western, primitive, almost, uh, facility. And they had these, like, glass-hot cups that they were putting on her back, you know, drawing something out. And she said, you know, I just had to decide that I would die to myself and trust. I'm just going to trust these people. I don't know what they're saying, and I don't know what they're doing to me, and everything seems really unfamiliar. There is a kind of death to self that happens um, when you are forced to look into those places where we need to take this off, where you're not sure what's, what's happening. You are out of control. When you're out of control, that's when you begin to trust. Hear well, love well, die well. That's what this is about. That's what the sending of the 12 is about. Let's look at um, Luke 9 and the first couple of verses here. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God to heal the sick. So, he confers power and authority. Okay, the the resurrection hasn't happened. Somehow a cosmic shift has occurred in the universe. Maybe at his baptism, maybe at the refusal of the enemy in the desert, but something has happened where Jesus can confer power and authority over sickness and demons before his resurrection to those who are following him. Fascinating. So these guys now have this authority over principalities and powers and are being sent out in a, a way to bring about greater freedom. 1 John um, 3.8, I don't have it here. You can look it up if you want. It's just a short verse. John says here, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's work. I'm giving you guys power and authority to do what I was sent to do, which is to destroy the devil's work, to confront evil. And you now have that ability to do that. Um, The healing that they bring, the exorcisms that they bring, are a sign that something has shifted in the universe of the increase of his government and his shalom. There'll be no end and it starts now. The kingdom of God is advancing at this point. Now, instead of Jesus doing the advancing, he's conferred power and authority on those who know and love him. And uh, this is before Peter's profession of faith. I don't know that they're Christians yet, so to speak. You know, They've made some decisions to follow this guy. And Jesus is giving them power and authority over um, principalities and power and he's telling them preach to people that if they make me their personal lord and savior they'll be saved I, that's not how i read it i want you to preach the kingdom. remember what i taught on the mountain that one time someone in the future is going to call it the sermon on the mount i want you to teach that stuff i want you to proclaim the kingdom of god the nation of God, you know, they're hearing nation. They're hearing, you know, prime minister, president, and a domain a realm. I want you to preach about the nation of God and the stuff that makes up the nation. I want you to preach the uh, economics of the nation of God, which Luke knew. You know, the economics of God's nation is centrifugal. It moves out to the margins. The these economies of the, the kingdoms of this world you know, gather in like a magnet. I want you to teach those things. Teach the kingdom, those qualities of the kingdom. That's what they were sent to do. Show that there's been a cosmic shift. Principalities and power are now subject to this new king, this new kingdom, and start teaching the principles of this kingdom. That's why the the, the sort of church or Christianity wasn't called Christianity. back. It was called the way. It was, it's about this posture, this... This way of life, not primarily about this uh, intellectual ascent or this you know, doctrinal basis that you tick a box or this prayer that you pray. It's about a whole way of life. The way, that's what they were called. You know, people of this way, this nation, this realm, this economy, this, this uh, political system almost with a prime minister. Jesus Christ. So that's what they were sent to teach. Proclaim the kingdom. Tell those parables about mustard seed and the leaven. Tell the leaven one. This woman has this little bit of leaven. She works it through this great lump and it has this massive leavening effect. I want you to teach those things as you go. I often wonder how do I think about proclaiming the kingdom to people who don't yet know Jesus? What would that look like? I know how to lead people into the gospel of salvation, and there's a guy, uh, a theologian, uh, Scott McKnight, he says the gospel of salvation is a subset of the gospel of the kingdom. How do we teach that broader gospel of the kingdom without leaving out that invitation? Like, coming under this king is the most amazing thing that you could do, and Christ as victor over our brokenness and over our need for healing and uh, cleansing from sin, our relationship to one another and to God and to the land like and to yourself. like That's a great invitation. Don't leave that out. But it's it's bigger. It's about this way. It's about this kingdom. That's what they were sent to, to teach. Let's read on. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. It was a little risky, but we decided... I think we should do this with students. So we were in an East Asian country. It was actually not me, but another pair of directors. They studied this passage and then said, okay, the place we're going, the city we're going, is two days away. We're going to send you out in pairs. Now, this was a country where there is, particularly in the rural areas where they were, a culture of hospitality, like in uh, the, you know, Palestine at this time. So there was that expectation, and at least one of them, when we sent them out in pairs, had the language. But we said, empty your credit cards and your wallets. Take nothing for the journey. We'll give you bus fare and a phone number. And then, um, you know, carry the kingdom with you. So these, you know, 19 and 20 years olds, until risk management got a hold of it, Um, went out in pairs on buses to strange towns, and guess what? People took them in. You know, they go out to get a little food. Hey, and you're asked, you know. They stood out as people who weren't from around there. Where are you staying tonight? We don't have a place to stay. Oh, you must stay with us. They're getting invited into people's homes and to weddings and stuff like that. Like, Jesus wanted that kind of surrender, that trust without borders. Like, that doesn't happen unless you're sent on a bus without a credit card uh, on a mission to just be and to bring the kingdom and to look for people of peace to invite you into their homes. That's a gift to that 20-year-old who's going to remember that trip the rest of their lives and realize Jesus showed up. We can trust God. We can trust the people that we're going to. That's sometimes harder. I'm going to trust the people that I don't know and who don't know me that they're going to take care of me. Uh, I'm going to put myself in the position of a guest, not the host, not the person, not the teacher. Okay, it's great, And, and I do appreciate people who go out as English teachers. But there's still a kind of power there. And some of my friends say, you know, I've seen uh, particularly American English teacher missionaries and students who say yes to Jesus are kind of doing it because there's this cultural ability to say yes to the person who's got that teaching power and like, go as a student. Go dependent is the way that Jesus sends them, but I still believe we ought to go as teachers too when you've got that gift. I'm just saying there's a a way in which that humility of being sent into a strange place without much power, being dependent on the people that you're going to, that's the missionary posture. That's the way in which you think, I am humbly um, submitting to you and to your hospitality. There's vulnerability, there's there's value in vulnerability and abdicating control. What's that look like here? How do we put ourselves at the mercy of people that we're longing to see more of the kingdom in and through and become dependent on, become vulnerable? That's the posture. I'd like to encourage us to imagine as we're thinking about the university, about this neighborhood, about the triangle. And I I just want to hold up the set, the setting of the 70 or the 72. You can look up why some versions say 70 and why some say 72. Google it. It's boring, kind of to me. I mean, it is you sort of gets into the Septuagint and you know the use of those numbers, but. I'm going to read uh, from the NIV, which says 72. (laughs) So some will say 70. Luke 10. After this, and we'll study some of what this is. I'm just pairing these things because I think Luke likes to sort of hold these things up in the same breath. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two. "'Ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. "'He told them, "'The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. "'Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, "'to send out workers into his harvest field. "'Go. "'I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves.' Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. You know, they could cover more territory if they just split up. I'm sending you in pairs. Some commentators like to take Matthew's, you know, Jesus called the twelve and, and they're mentioned in pairs and they like to say, I think these are the. Pairs that were sent out, and they they make something of sometimes the oddity of the pairs, like you know, Simon the Zealot, uh, this you know revolutionary sent with Judas Iscariot, and uh, almost an intentional uh, dissonance in how God likes us to walk alongside people that are different. Any of you see uh, the series or some of the chosen? Um, one of the things I like about the chosen is the bickering of the disciples. Like, there's just so much contention. And we get that in Scripture, but when you see it played out in the little bickering and backbiting and stuff like that, it's like, oh my gosh. There's something about this being with people that you're just a little bit uncomfortable with and kind of don't like. And yet you're invited to be on mission with them with Jesus, there's a grinding off of the edges, or maybe a growing in grace and understanding that's forced. If it's just the two of you, you're going to have to depend on one another, you're going to have to depend on the people you're going to, and I'm taking away all sorts of stuff so you're going to have to depend on God too. We need to lose our messianic complex when we're so in control and in power It's so easy to have this idea that I am going as the one in charge, as kind of the savior. Uh, Americans are really good at this. Movies, movies are moving away from this. But for a long time, if the world is in peril in a movie, the Nigerians never save the planet. (laughs) It is always the Americans. (laughs) So we have this mentality, like we're raised with this idea. We take up. So much oxygen in the you know world that it's hard to see the, the beauty and power of others. And so to dial back, especially working with young people, like we need to disabuse them of their sense of absolute control and absolute power and greatness in the world, and to make them dependent. And that's why it's good sometimes to take those things away, to force us to wake up from the illusion that we've got the goods, that we've got the power. It's so easy to have that attitude in me. Like, I find it all the time. So it's not just students or not just Americans. I think a lot of people you know, have this desire for control or this, this sense that they have what other people need. Um, I have a Lakota friend. Eric and I have a Lakota friend, Cortland. He grew up in the Rosebud Reservation, South Dakota. Uh, Grandparents were in boarding schools. He said, you know, as I've looked at the history of my people, many of the missionaries came not as guests. They came as sort of owners of the land, uh, conquerors of the land. And that didn't work super well in my community. We were given, Jesus gave power and authority not over the land to conquer it, not over the people, over principalities and powers. He made them dependent. We've got a um, high value of self-sufficiency. Not just American, I think uh, Germans, of German heritage. You know, be don't rely on your neighbors. You've got to be self-sufficient, you know, the... Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, uh, Paul would always get uncomfortable if he could see the smoke of someone else's chimney somewhere on the horizon. He was too close to people. Need to be sort of totally out there and dependent on yourself. It's just not biblical. We're supposed to be dependent on one another, we're supposed to be dependent on God. Self sufficiency is a sin. It's harmful to your soul. I want to be sufficient without anyone else, without needing anyone else, without even needing God. I'm sufficient all by myself. So first of all, that's hyper-individualism. And second, it's just wrong. It's just unhealthy for us. It's a lie. You can't be self-sufficient. No person is an island. And so, sending out in prayers, I'm taking stuff away, I'm going to teach you dependence. Let's read on from verse 5. When you enter a house, first say, Shalom to this house. If someone who promotes shalom is there, your shalom will rest on them. If not, it'll return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. This is what we like to point out to students who <laughs> like to, to find their food and bring their jar of peanut butter. Eat whatever they give you. Um, Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So we see this um, vulnerability and dependence, and we also see food. I love when food shows up. You know, there are a number of very critical themes throughout the Bible. Worship would be one. It's mentioned 254 times in the NIV. That English word, worship, is mentioned 254 times. Kingdom, Luke mentions it more than any of the other gospel writers. It's mentioned in scripture 347 times. The word eat shows up 623 times more than both of those combined. (laughs) It's really important. There's something about our identity that's connected with food. That's why there's dietary laws. I think there's a sense of trying to create an identity for a group of people. Eat. That's mentioned all over the place. And here we see, eat what's put before you. Mentioned a few times, like. Food's important to people. You eat what they give you. It's important to them. They're, d- they're doing an act of kindness and hospitality. I don't care if you've never seen that kind of food before, or you, your mom doesn't make it like that. That's your call, your challenge. Eat whatever's put before you. I don't know if that works with kids. Uh, probably not. It doesn't. Broccoli. <laughs> Can we say broccoli? (laughs) But there is a spirituality to eating, right? And There's something about community and connection with people and feeling like you are at table. And something happens that's different than when you're walking alongside or working alongside someone. When you're sitting down and putting food in your mouth, something changes in the heavenlies. So I think there's a spiritual invitation here to eat with people, to eat whatever's put before you. Um, And it's okay to leave places that you're not welcome. I kind of like this idea because sometimes in the... um, Missionary community, there's a sense of, oh, I'm going to go and stick it out. If you're not welcomed, go on to another place. It's not about imposing this kingdom on people who just either aren't ready, like maybe, maybe God has this great view of time and is like, you don't need to worry about that. Go to those places where you're welcome, where there's a person of peace there. That's where you're supposed to go. You know, wipe the dust off. The gospel isn't something that is forced down somebody's throat that's imposed on someone who doesn't want it. Like, just leave that place. Leave that house. And I want you, when you come into a place, I want you to speak shalom, prosperity, goodness, peace into that place. And if there's someone there, like, speak it to the house. Speak it to the property. Speak it to the land that you're on. If there's someone there who's a purveyor of peace, like, it's going to make a difference there. If not, it'll come back to you. Nothing lost. I love saying the word peace when I greet people, when I come into places, and meaning it. I want peace in this place. I I want shalom. I want everything that's full and good and right and fair in you and in this place. Peace. Shalom. Say that. And when you do, the kingdom of God comes near. Heal the sick. And tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And for me, as I read that, I think, it's because I've come near to you. There's a way in which the 70 are carrying shalom. They're carrying the kingdom of God, the nation of God inside them. I think Jesus says in one place, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. There is a way that the territory of God travels with us, and the shalom of God travels with us. And when you come into this place, shalom of God, the peace of God here. Heal the sick. Guess what? The nation of God has come near to you. You let me into your home. You let me speak peace. You allowed me to pray, and the kingdom, the nation of God, came near in that exchange. The kingdom is embodied. It takes on flesh, just like the king took on our flesh. So the kingdom takes on our flesh. And you are walking in these earth suits, carrying the kingdom of God inside you and able to speak things of peace. And you notice, it's not like Oh, and by the way, as you bring the kingdom with you, everything will go well. Like, you're going to be kicked out of some places, and it's not going to go very well. I'm going to take away your purse and other things, but that's okay. Like, you'll open the mouths of fish, and there'll be money and whatever. No, sometimes people aren't going to welcome you. Um, I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. You're going to learn what it looks like when you're really sent out by Jesus, and you're really willing to go uh, where trust is without borders, you're going to learn what it feels like to trust people who don't know God, are demon possessed, and in need of healing. Like that's how I read that. I'm going to send you out. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to heal people. Oh, by the way, you're going to live with them, and you're going to eat. What you're going to live in demon possessed homes uh, amongst people who don't know much about the kingdom. And uh, they're going to be sick. Depend on them. You're, you're going to place yourself at their mercy. What's that like? I'm going to put myself at the mercy of a demon-possessed person who doesn't know much about the kingdom, and they're gonna, I'm, I need to trust them to feed me. But I want to tell them about this nation, about this way, about this king and the realm that's traveling inside me and bringing it with me. So, you carry inside yourself the kingdom of God. You carry inside yourself the healing and deliverance of God and the shalom of God, the peace of God. And we are to administer those uh, elements, those charisms those graces by proclaiming I do think there's a word part of this Jesus did a lot of teaching go teach the Sermon on the Mount go teach about the kingdom and then tell people the kingdoms come near because you've allowed me to come near to you you carry that peace Um, become dependent and then take authority over broken shalom in those places. That's the posture, the mentality, the mindset as we move from you know, being students to being sent ones, from disciples to apostles. As we think about our neighborhood that we live in, our workplace, and about this place, this neighborhood where our family worships. Let me pray for us. And then we are going to move to ascending time. Lord, I know I sang um, that I want your spirit to lead me where trust is without borders. But honestly, it's scary as I think about, well, what if I didn't have a backup plan or recourse? Yeah. W- I... I want to want that. I don't want that right now, but I want to want it. And I know you honor the want to want to prayer. Would you make me want to be dependent and vulnerable and trusting you and trusting my brothers and sisters and trusting the people that you send us to, even those who seem like they're way out there? Build that in us. Build that in me. Send us out in Jesus' name.